Good morning, beloved. Uh, we are continuing in our exploration of the gospel according to Mark. Um, but before we jump in there, do you remember the drama of choosing teams as a kid? Oh, some of you may still need to see some counseling. I certainly do. Um, but you remember, like, you, you get out to the recess, the, the field, the playground, or your MPE class or whatever, and somehow, um, and largely as a former teacher, I can tell you this is true, it's because the teacher really wants to see something that's worth watching. They choose the best two kids, and they say, like, you're captain, you're captain, so you have to choose your teams. Um, and so just how competitive I am, if I wasn't one of those two, then I already lost. Like, I, just, I needed the teacher to acknowledge that I need to pick my team. But then the, you start choosing, and, you know, you want to win, right? You want to win, so you choose, well, that kid's good, so, no, no, no. and you just never want to be the last one chosen, and that's just really awful. Like, the, the whole situation is just awful, um, but I still wrestle with such choices. Um, and, and it may not be choosing my team, but particularly, like, just really wrestling. When I have to make a decision about something, I'm making my choice, and I wrestle with, like, is it better to win, or is it worse to lose? You're like, well, that's like the half glass or the glass half full or half empty, like it's just kind of mindset or perspective, it's about your personality, or maybe in our more adult language, we'd say, is it better to succeed or is it worse to fail? And I think it goes beyond just your personality and just how we look at things, but there's really something that is driving our decision-making. What is it that drives my choosing? What's really at the heart behind why am I afraid to fail or why am I obsessed with succeeding? What is it that is driving my decision-making? And so um, we're gonna wrestle with that today and just making a decision as we go back into the gospel according to Mark, but to, to kind of bring you up to where we're gonna be picking up, um, you need to know who Pilate is. Pilate is a prefect. And so Pilate is this prefect, or essentially a Roman governor. And so um, in the context of Jesus' day, about 2,000 years ago, the Roman Empire was ruling pretty much the known world. And so the Roman Empire, you remember that from your world history classes as a kid, but huge, just vastly expansive territory and power. And they gained that power, and then they held that power through a lot of brutal force. Like they, they would quash any kind of rebellion. And so the, the Israelites, the people of God, they're here in ancient Palestine and they live under Roman occupation. There would be Roman soldiers just on a daily basis kind of wandering through, keeping watch over things, keeping things under control. And they had to pay crazy taxes to the Roman Empire and all this stuff. And so this is not exactly the friend of Israel. And Pilate is a governor, a Roman governor of Judea, which is where we find Jesus in this story here seated in Jerusalem. And so Pilate is this guy. His seat is actually in Caesarea, um, but he is currently where we pick up in Jerusalem because as we left off last week, they're in this time of the Passover festival. And so the Passover feast is coming and they're here getting ready for all of this. It's an annual observance to remember when God delivered them or freed them from Egyptian enslavement and brought them out the exodus or the, the drawing out, the exit, if you will, that God has saved them. And so they're here. There are gonna be thousands upon thousands of Jews coming into Jerusalem. And so Pilate is here because he knows when you've got a lot of people coming in and they're not exactly friends or fans of the Roman Empire, they come into this city and all amassed together, there's a good chance that something bad could happen. And so the guy who's in charge is like, I'm gonna be there. 
to make sure that nothing bad happens. So you imagine there are more Roman soldiers here. There's, there's the guy who's in charge is here. Like there's, there's a lot going on, all this hustle and bustle. They're here for the Passover festival along with thousands if not millions of others. And this is where we are. Pilate all of a sudden is given Jesus because Jesus has been betrayed. Judas, the betrayer, the traitor, has through a kiss betrayed Jesus. And so Jesus, in the Garden of Gethsemane, he's weeping and he's crying. He's just, he's sweating blood. He's having so much anxiety and he's under so much stress. And, and he knows he's praying to God and saying, like, not my will. Like, let this cup pass, but like, I'll submit to your will, God. And lo and behold, these guys come with torches and clubs. They're ready for a fight. And Jesus is like, what have, I, what have I done that you're coming against me so violently? And so you know the story. They arrest him. And so Jesus has been arrested and he's basically spent the night with the the religious officials just kind of tearing into him, accusing him of all kinds of things, trying to bring up some testimonies, but everything's conflicting and they're trying to get their kind of case together and then they take him in the morning tied up and they sit him before Pilate and Pilate receives Jesus. And now Pilate has to make a choice because Jesus has been given to him as a prisoner. And so we pick up in Mark chapter 15. If you have your copy of scripture, we're gonna be in Mark chapter 15, starting in verse six. It'll also be on the screen behind me. Mark chapter 15, starting in verse six. It says, at the festival, and so remember, what is the festival? This is Passover. So you have all these people amassed here to celebrate the Passover. At the festival, Pilate used to release for the people a prisoner whom they requested. Okay, so, so what's happening here is that this is an ongoing tradition that at this Passover festival, Pilate would show up because again, he wants to make sure that nothing gets out of control here. And so at this, he would want to keep the peace. And so Pilate would try to keep the peace and maintain control because he had this kind of like crazy, chaotic relationship with the Jews. They did not like him. He's a bit sarcastic, sadistic, just not respectful of their faith in so many ways. And so one of the ways that he would try to keep some level of peace and everything is he would kind of give this concession that when I come for Passover and I'm here once a year, I'll release one of your prisoners. Someone that I have in custody, I'll release to you. Someone's like, if I do this, then you guys just chill, okay? Let's all be peaceful. Nothing get out of control. Because what he knows is if things get out of control and he doesn't handle it well, then Pilate is out of a job and probably out of a head as well. Like, he will, he will face the consequences for things under his control getting out of control. And so Pilate would do this thing where on Passover, this festival, he used to release for the people a prisoner whom they requested. That was kind of a way of saying, like, here, let's be peaceable. I'll give you back someone I took from you, okay? All right, guys? And so that's what's happening here. And then verse seven. There was one named Barabbas who was in prison with rebels who had committed murder during the rebellion. The crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do for them as was his custom. Pilate answered them, do you want me to release the king of the Jews for you? For he knew it was because of envy that the chief priests had handed him over. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd so that they would release Barabbas to them instead. What? So Pilate's like, okay, you, you want me to do this thing where I release to you one of the prisoners, okay? Well, I'll give you two options. You want the king of the Jews? Because that was their accusation. When they brought Jesus to him, they're like, well, listen, you know, Caesar, Caesar's the real king, right? 
And here's this guy who's saying that he's king. He's saying he's the son of God. He's the Messiah. And so that makes him king over Israel. So like, he's obviously out of bounds here. He can't do that kind of thing here in the Roman empire. Like we're good little Roman subjects, okay? This guy's not being good. And so that's how they're trying to kind of posit Jesus off on him. And he's like calling the bluff on him. He's like, oh, okay, it's time to release somebody. Do you guys want the king of the Jews? The king of the Jews? He's using that almost a way of mocking them. Like you want your king? And or you can have Barabbas. And who is Barabbas? Barabbas is known. He's actually mentioned in all four gospels, which is really, really important for us to see. Like that shows there's a lot of importance in the picture of this guy. Um, And so if we piece together what all four of the gospels tell us about Barabbas, what we know about him is he's a notorious criminal, he's a murderer, and he was involved in some kind of insurrection or rebellion. And so everybody knows that. And so whether you are pro-Roman Empire or against the Roman Empire, this guy is not your friend. He is a murderer. He is a criminal. He is not to be trusted. The guy was part of a rebellion. And like, if the rebellion was not successful, you know what it does for the people? It makes things worse because they just have to crack down even harder. So these guys were not their friend. Like, this guy is crazy. And so Pilate presents Barabbas as the option pitted against Jesus. He's assuming that the people are clearly going to choose Jesus. And he's kind of like, you, you can just imagine him like, this is his way of kind of frustrating the Jewish leaders. Like, you brought me this guy, the king of the Jews? You want the king of the Jews back? Oh, you don't want him back? Well, how about Barabbas? This guy who kills people and makes things way worse for you. You want him? Huh? And he's thinking, like, surely they're going to choose Jesus. Because Pilate already knows, like, I don't have any real kind of charge against this guy. What has he actually done? And so this is crazy. Look at verse 10. Verse 10, it says, For he knew it was because of envy that the chief priest had handed him over. Pilate knew that the problem of the religious elites was that they envied Jesus. Have you thought about that? The reason behind the betrayal of Jesus that led to his crucifixion, the death of the Son of God, you can trace it back to Pilate rightly calling it out that you religious leaders, you're envious of him. You're envious of Jesus. He knew they were envious of Jesus and that's why he's trying to kind of like throw this back on them. He knew their problem was that they envied Jesus. And what is crazy about that, as the chief priests, people who were to devote their lives to knowing the word of God and applying it rightly to the people of God, all of it is speaking of this Messiah, this king who is to come. They of all people should have known who Jesus was. They of all people should have been most excited about who Jesus is and that he has arrived. And yet here they are, envious of Jesus, envious of his ministry, his success, how he could gather a crowd, how he could perform miracles, how he could teach with authority, how he could confound them when they tried to oppose him. They're envious of Jesus. And so they turn him over. Envy is defined as a feeling of discontented or resentful longing aroused by someone else's possessions, qualities, or luck. Let's be honest, we all experience envy. We know what it is to feel envy, to to want what someone else has, whether that is their life, their things, whatever it is, that we want that, and we grow resentful because of that. We're not content with what we have, we want what others have. 
Um, and maybe it's the promotion that you saw someone else get. You thought, I shouldn't be getting that salary. And suddenly you feel this bitterness towards that person. And you had no part in the process of them getting that promotion. But suddenly you resent them because they got the promotion. And you wanted that. Or maybe it's that house. Man, why do they have such a nice big house? That should be mine. I've worked so hard. Here I am in this little thing. Or maybe it's someone's spouse. Like, oh, that, she's just so gorgeous. Oh, why, I want that. Oh, we get resentful of people. Maybe it's just the pace of someone else's life or the ease of their life. They never have crises like I have crises. Why? Why? Why do I get this? Or for me personally, as a pastor, it's easy to fall into ministry success envy. That you look at another church and how much support staff or how much growth they have or how much they can do, all the stuff, and just everything in our lives, we can become envious of others as we compare against other people and grow resentful towards them because we want what they have. And that is what the religious elites are doing here with Jesus. They're envious of Jesus. They want what he has. And so they want him killed. Oh, no, we don't want that. We have to be careful. Like, if, if we let this go on, then what if we find ourselves in the same situation? If, if we don't keep envy in check, then what if, like the chief priests, we find ourselves in this situation where we're actually opposed to God himself? That your envy is actually pitting you against God. Have you thought about the Ten Commandments? And one of them is, thou shalt not covet. Like, don't covet your neighbor's things, which is greatly related to this idea of envy. Like, you, you're wanting what someone else has. And have you ever thought, like, okay, most of the Ten Commandments, they make pretty logical sense. Like, thou shalt not lie. Like, if we all started lying, then things would kind of fracture. Like, society would crumble. This would not go well for us. Thou shalt not kill. Like, oh, that makes sense. Like, if, if we just killed people when we got angry, then we would have a lot less people, and this would not go well for us. And so all of these Ten Commandments, like they're, they're making a lot of sense, and you're like, oh, don't, don't be envious. Don't covet what your neighbor has. Like, yeah. If, if my neighbor has a really cool car, and I really like that cool car, I think I'd really like to have that cool car. I'm not, I'm not gonna go kill him and take his car. I'm not gonna steal his car. Like I'm not gonna do, he doesn't even know that I like his car. What is this really hurting? Did this really make it into the top 10 list, God? What is the deal here? Have you thought about that? Well, let's go back to Old Testament theology. All of the Ten Commandments are really just an outgrowth of the first commandment. What is the first commandment? No other gods before me. If you violate any of the other commandments, you have violated the first one. And so when we covet, when we envy someone else's stuff, their life, their possessions, whatever it is, then what we're doing is we're saying, I am not content with what you have given me, God. If you are sovereign, if God in his providence is truly sovereign, he is actually in control, then wherever I find myself, God has placed me. And that is not to excuse ourselves of responsibility that we put ourselves in terrible situations, but our station in life, for me to look at someone else and think, ah, oh, I wish I had that, that is for me to say, what you have given me, God, is not enough. And so now I'm calling into question the character and love and provision of God. And so to envy is to actually pit ourselves against God as they literally now find themselves opposing God himself. 
because they're envious of his ministry. And scripture tells us to weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice. And that is our command as followers of Christ. And I love how um, Joe Rigney, he says it like this. He says, envy reverses the biblical ordering. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Instead, to weep at those who rejoice and rejoice over those who weep. And how counter the heart of God can we get? And that is what envy does to us. Envy actually robs us of joy. It breaks and diminishes relationships. Don't let envy go unchecked. So we see what happens here. The envy of the religious elite, it leads to the chief priest convincing the crowd to choose Barabbas. That they would choose a man who is known for murdering people, for, for leading this insurrection that brought harsher consequence and control, a tighter grip on Judea. And we want him. Yes, him, not Jesus. Because of their jealousy, their envy of Jesus. And I'll look at verse 12. Pilate asked them again, then what do you want me to do with the one you call the king of the Jews? And you can kind of hear the sarcasm. And what do you want me to do with this king of the Jews, as you call him? You just imagine, like, we don't call him that. <laughs> That's what you said? That's why you wanted me to imprison him? Verse 13, again they shouted, crucify him. Pilate said to them, why? What has he done wrong? But they shouted all the more, crucify him. Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them, and after having Jesus flogged, he handed him over to be crucified. Again, he's got to stay in his position. He has a choice to make. Does he uphold justice? And he has no legal ground for doing this to Jesus. He has no legal ground for even keeping Jesus detained. Does he uphold justice? Or does he satiate the crowd to keep the peace and keep his position? He makes this decision to satisfy the crowd. He releases a murderer, an insurrectionist. He walks freely and Jesus is flogged and handed over to be crucified. And do you see the gravity of this moment? That Jesus is God, the Son, who has taken on human flesh. The creator has become like his own creation and entered into the hands of his own creation so his own creation can say, I would rather have the guy who kills people and is absolutely crazy than you. Crucify him, kill him in this brutal, just absolutely barbaric way. The creator came to creation to be crucified by them. And you just imagine like, oh, what? Next week we'll celebrate Palm Sunday. That in this timeline, just a few days prior, people are amassed and they're throwing down their cloaks and their robes and palm fronds and they're waving them and they're screaming and they're shouting and they're singing. They're, they're worshiping. Hosanna. Here comes the king. He's marching into the city. And here we are now as the crowds have been swept up and are shouting, crucify him. And this is us, collectively screaming to put the creator to death as his own creation. What I want you to see is that Barabbas is a gospel parable. 
This is a picture of the gospel. Because we all face a choice. And you have to make a decision. Now, even. Will you put your trust in your own innocence, in your own abilities, that you can do it? Or will you put your trust in the innocent Jesus, dying in our place, in the place of us who are guilty, realizing I have no innocence to offer? This is the picture of Barabbas this gospel parable, that we are Barabbas. We are guilty and walking away free while the innocent one is actually condemned. That in the story we should see ourselves locked up and headed to execution, rightfully so, because we're guilty of so many things. Just like Barabbas. And here comes Jesus, thrown into the clink with us, so the world watches and you think, somebody gets free today. Who's it gonna be? Well, you've done absolutely nothing wrong, Jesus. Who should go free? Jesus. Shouldn't be here in the first place. Why did he enter into this insanity? Why did he set aside his glory and leave the throne and take on the form of man? Humbled and obedient to the point of death even death on a cross, so that we, the guilty ones, like Barabbas, could walk away free while he took our place. This is the beauty of this picture. This is what is called, in theological terms, but this is really important for you to understand. This is called substitutionary atonement. That's a very big, fancy word, but just think about it. Substitutionary, there's a substitute and there is atonement or covering. There is a substitute that will cover for us. That is what this is. That is what Jesus has done. Paul said it like this in Romans chapter 3, 21 to 26. He said, but now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been revealed, attested by the law and the prophets. The righteousness of God is through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe, since there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Who has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God? All. All of us. There is no innocent one among us. We are all guilty. We are all Barabbas. But they are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Justified freely. There's nothing you could do to earn this. To pay for your salvation, you have no ability, but it is given freely. And now listen to this. God presented him as an atoning sacrifice in his blood received through faith demonstrate his righteousness because in his restraint, God passed over the sins previously committed. God presented him to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so that he would be righteous and declare the righteous, the one who has faith in Jesus. It's a substitutionary atonement that this sacrifice, and that is what all of the Old Testament, all of the temple sacrifice, all that stuff, the idea of something dying, blood being shed, was all to point to this once and for all final sacrifice of Jesus who would die and his blood would cover all of our sins. He would take our place. This substitute would step in and we would walk away free and his blood would be spilt as a covering for all of our sin. So there would be at no cost to us but would cost him his very life. This is substitutionary atonement. And I want you to see in the context here, what was it that led the religious elite to turn Jesus over? Envy. And do you see how substitutionary atonement is the very opposite of envy? 
substitutionary atonement that Jesus envy for us. Envy is to say, I want what they have and I grow resentful toward them because I want that. And now in substitutionary atonement, Jesus in grace with no resentment but joyfully out of love for us says, I'll take your place and take the thing you don't want and I'll give you what I have. This is glorious. This is a God who is worth all of your adoration. He is worth every bit of your devotion. A God who would love us like that, that we would walk away free and he would be condemned and crucified in our place. That is glory. And I want you to see this, like the, the willingness of Christ to do this. That yes, he has been in anguish in the garden and he knows what is coming. And he knows how hard it is going to be. That it's going to be awful. And yet he submits to that. And it's easy for us because of the way that we think, for us to think like, oh, he, just, he didn't want to do that. But he did. He wanted to do this. This week was spring break. We took our kids to the beach for a couple days. And the first day we get there, we walk down and the water is freezing cold. So we're not getting in the water. And so we're kind of like ankle toe deep. And I look and there's jellyfish. There's three or four jellyfish laying out there. And so my kids want to play tag. I was like, well, we're going to step it up. And just disclaimer, I'm not a good parent. Um, but I, I see the jellyfish there and I see like the tentacles are gone and I love the ocean. So I know like the tentacles are the part that actually sting you. So this jellyfish is dead and it's totally safe. And so I pick it up and like, we're going to play tag with a jellyfish. And so Leland's like, oh, like I can see he's like excited and terrified at the same time. And so I just reach out, whap, smack him in the butt. And he's like, ah, like freaking out. Ah. Like, you're not hurt. You're okay. It, and so I'm trying to explain to him, like, it's safe. They're not going to hurt you. The tentacles are gone. It's dead. It's just going to feel funny and freak you out. And so here we are playing tag. But I watch, and every time that my kids would reach down to get the jellyfish after I've thrown it or they've thrown it, like, they're looking and they're just like, uh, uh, like so hesitant, like they want to get it so badly, but they're also so terrified, like I don't, I don't want to touch it, I'm scared of it, and it's awful, it's yucky, and all this stuff, and it reminded me of this book that I've been reading with other pastors, where he talks about how like that's often how we view God with us, like this kid, for the first time, with his face all grimaced, and he's reaching out to touch a slug, it's like, oh, it's slimy, snotty, like I want to touch it, but I don't want to touch it, like my kids, I want to play the game so bad. I don't want to touch that idea. That's how we think God is with us. Like, yeah, he wanted to save me, but man, he, nah, I'm so gross. I'm so guilty. He, it's almost like he was just obliged to. Like, out of obligation, he had to come, and he had to die in my place. That is not the picture that the scriptures paint of who God is and what his heart is for us. No, he willingly went to the cross. It says that he set his face toward Jerusalem. There are moments where it makes it just overwhelmingly clear he wanted to do this. He decided. He was not just under some compulsion that he had to do this. He wanted to. He desires you. He wants you. He loves us with a love that stirs deep within him the overflow of his very essence. He wants us and he wanted to do this. Hebrews says that for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising the scorn of its shame, all that. Yes, he knew it's going to hurt, but he wanted to. It was a joy for him to do this for us. He saw us and he wanted us. He loves you. 
He died for you willingly. Would you love him? See the way that he loves you and out of an overflow how much we have been loved, then we love him back and we love others. This is grace. This is the gospel. It is good news that we don't deserve this. We deserve to be like Barabbas locked up and then we should be killed. But instead, Jesus in grace says, you're free, I'll take it. Put it on me. And that is incredible. This changes everything. It changes everything. Um, Do you remember a few weeks ago we talked about the blind beggar, Bartimaeus? And we talked about his name. Timaeus meant highly prized. And Bar is from or son of. And so Bartimaeus was the son of highly prized. And we talked about the irony of that. And so um, hopefully you know that there, there is meaning and significance to names often in scripture. And here we have Barabbas. And Barabbas is our very uh, Americanized, I'm um, super Western rendition of Barabbas, but Barabbas would be more appropriate. And so if Bar means from or son of, and then think Abbas or Abba. Have you heard Abba? This Arabic expression that we see multiple times in scripture, which means father, but in the most personal, endearing way, like daddy, that we hear Jesus praying out to the Father, Abba. And so here we have Bar Abbas, or son of the Father, or just another human. And they're faced with a decision. Would you like the son of the Father, or just another human, to be freed? Or will you choose the Son of God? And that's your decision today. Will you put your trust in yourself, just the son of another human, the son of another father, the daughter of another father, and your ability to somehow earn your way into heaven or forgiveness or freedom or whatever your heart really, truly longs for? Will you be your own God? Or will you put your trust in the son of God? who loved you so much that he actually took your place on a cross and died the death that you and I deserve. And then he rose again victorious over death and says, just believe and follow me. So which son will you choose? Let's pray. God, we thank you. God, you're so, so good to us. So we come confessing our need for you. God, and confessing our trust in you. You have come, Jesus, and you did love us to the end. You have loved us with such great love. Uh, We have never known love until we've known you. Thank you for loving us as you have loved us. Thank you that while we are Barabbas, uh, we can walk away free as you stay and are condemned, that you died for us. And so, as we approach Easter, Let us be forever mindful of what it took to see you resurrected in such great glory. This started with our wretchedness, with our condemnation, but then you in glorious grace stepping in to take our place, to be our substitute, to atone for our sin. Thank you. I love you. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.